We are still in Romans chapter 8, as I expressed to you last week, that there's at least one Reformed theologian that basically has stepped out on the limb of saying that in his opinion, this particular chapter in the book of Romans is the most important chapter in the whole Bible. I don't think most people would go to that extreme, but it is extremely important. It has everything to do with a rightful understanding of how it is that God saves people. How it is that people come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 17 this morning, so join me if you would. There's therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the, spirit, uh, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation, or we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are not or are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who were being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you <clears throat> have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. One of the things that struck me is as I was reading all my Bible commentaries over the last couple of weeks, uh, is there's a great emphasis on a number of things, but one of the things that, you know, very often you'll find scriptures that are held together basically by little threads that run all through them. And there's a thread that runs all through this passage that we read that should be very apparent to all of us. When we're talking about a particular theme that basically holds the whole thing together, everything that, law, that Paul has laid down here. 
And that is this. The Holy Spirit. Now, we are Reformed, and I know most of you know what that means. Some of you maybe don't know, and if you don't know and you'd like to know, then I'd love to have a conversation with you. Uh, one of the things that you're going to find is this, is very often there are people, there are groups of Christians that actually put a whole lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Some, sometimes, almost to the extent that they, they don't give much time and credence to anything else. It's just spirit, 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 spirit. Uh, one of the weaknesses, I would say, very often with, with Reformed people is we don't talk about the Holy Spirit near enough. But notice here that Paul emphasizes in this particular chapter the, the, the role of the Spirit of God when it comes to salvation. He also refers to something called, he calls flesh here repeatedly. And you're seeing a contrast over and over again between those led by the Spirit and those who are led by the flesh. It appears all the way through here. We understand the flesh to be a reference to the sinful part of us. The fallen part of us. The part of us that's fallen into sin. that we all have, but if you don't get anything else out of this part of chapter 8 that we've read so far, understand this, that there's a conflict going on between the flesh of our body and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. There are Christians who believe this, uh, that not every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are particular branches of Christianity that seems like they focus, like I said before, on this Holy Spirit and not much of anything else. But one of the things I want to drive home this morning is this, and that is this, is that every single believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No exceptions. If there is no Holy Spirit indwelling, then the faith that someone professes is not real. Because what we're talking about here is at the time of our conversion, just remember, before our conversion, we were dead in our trespasses. We did not even have the ability to come to faith in Jesus Christ without God causing our spirit to be born again, or what we call regenerated John chapter 3, Jesus makes it very clear in, in, the, in the 15th verse of his prologue to his gospel. It's very clear that that activity is an activity of God, that God sends his spirit to us. And until God does that, we are dead in our trespasses. Sin has gotten such a stranglehold upon all of us that apart from the power of God working in us, it cannot be put to death. It cannot be put aside. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. He's moving here. He's moving among us. He's moving in us. 
Jesus calls him the paraclete. He told the disciples in that upper room that he was about to leave, but he was not going to leave them alone, that he was going to send them a paraclete, a, a helper. We understand to be the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. What what do helpers do? They help. They don't do everything. They contribute sometimes a very great deal to what is done, but they don't do it all. They participate. They're active. They're involved. This is a particular helper that none of us can live for Christ without. But I just want to remind us this morning that that our activity as Christians has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. But just because that is true does not mean that we are not, or nothing is asked of us. He is our helpmate. He doesn't do it all. We have to work with him. You've heard people say that what we need to do is just let go and let God. There's a sense in which that sounds really, really good. I mean, it is. But you cannot understand that to mean that God doesn't require or or desire anything from us at all. That what we just need to do is just sit by and sit on our laurels and just let the Holy Spirit do everything without actively engaging in anything ourselves. Well, you know, that mindset is struck down by verse 13 in this chapter. Now, we are to be working by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, to put sin in us, in us, in me, to death. I don't want you to confuse what we're talking about this morning with the giving of of spiritual gifts. Paul hasn't gotten there yet, but he's going to get there. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifting. We have brothers and sisters that that very greatly emphasize that whole concept. Matter of fact, in some circles, it's like the main point or the focal point of pretty much everything they do. And I just want to remind us this morning that, that, that what you find here, you're going to find in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 is this. Spiritual gifts are gifts that God, the Spirit, gives to each believer. And not all the same gifts, but every believer receives spiritual gifting. It's not just a special group of believers that get spiritual gifts, but every believer. God has gifted you in particular ways. And oh, by the way, it's not for your benefit at all. It's for the benefit of the rest of the body of Christ. And Paul in 1 Corinthians and in, in, in Romans, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, he gives a list of spiritual gifts. 
Unfortunately, very often what we have today is a church that looks upon those and, and tallies up a list and says, these are the spiritual gifts that God gives, and this is an exhaustive list. It's not an exhaustive. This is the end of it. There's no other gifts. I beg to differ with them. What Paul is doing in both situations is giving examples of spiritual gifts that God gives to people. Never for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the rest of the body around them. And in those passages, Paul is encouraging them to use those gifts, to express those gifts to the utmost for the purpose of strengthening, building up the body of Christ. Not their own importance, not their own sense of self-worth, but for the good of everyone else. We're going to get a lot more into that in Romans chapter 12. But what I'm telling you here is you're sitting here this morning. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has also gifted you in special ways to do things in the body of Christ, for the body of Christ, that if you don't do, won't be done, and the body will suffer as a result of it. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, what it was the law could not do. The law could, could not save us where we were. If God had left us where we were, we were all, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. We're lost in our sin. Not one of us has the ability to get ourselves out of it. As a matter of fact, apart from God, not one of us has any desire of acknowledging it exists or any desire to get out of it. We are all very guilty very often of ignoring our own sin, and at the same time, we can see the sins of other people just as clear as the nose on our face. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. No one can save themselves by keeping the law. That's what he's talking about in verse 3. Because no one has kept the law. Ever. Except for one person. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done that for us, which we don't do, we can't do, we don't even want to do. Absolutely every jot and every tittle of it. And that is the reason why Paul can declare here in verse 1 that now there is no condemnation. Which should tell us this, that if we don't have the Spirit, if Christ has not saved us, then we are under God's condemnation. Which ultimately means this, is that we will spend eternity in hell. And I hate to be blunt, but that's just what it comes right down to. Under God's judgment, eternally, unrelentingly, forevermore. Coming to faith 
in Christ means real and substantial change. There's so much emphasis today put on making that decision. And let me tell you something. We do have to make a decision. Eventually, we make a decision to follow Jesus. We do that. But even that we can't do apart from, from Christ and apart from the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends. To move us to the point of understanding that, that I have no righteousness apart from him. I have nothing to offer God in my defense. If I'm going to be saved, something is very clear to me, and that is it has to be, and if righteousness is what's required, it's going to be, have to be righteousness that comes from outside of me because there's none in me. We're saved ultimately by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Granted to us by God. And because that's true, we can say there is no longer any condemnation. But it's only because of that we can say that. But like I said before, when you truly come to faith in Jesus Christ... There is real substantial change that takes place in you. You're not the same person you were before. It doesn't mean that you go from being a saint by snapping your fingers. We've talked about this in chapter 7. Paul, and we need to understand, this was late in the ministry of Paul. It wasn't early on. This was late in his ministry. Not so many years down the road, he is going to be executed in Rome. Because it's a faith in Jesus Christ. But that Paul struggling, like we said, with sin, abiding sin in him at this very point in his life. But one of the things we need to get out of what we're talking about today is this is this idea that I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I profess my faith in him, and now I can have every confidence that I'm going to heaven is just the end of the story. What the Bible teaches us is this, is that when you truly come to faith in Christ, there is a real substantial transformation that takes place in you that God initiates and God does. That's what it means that we're saved by grace and grace only. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God does that for us. We don't do it ourselves. I just want to encourage all of us to reflect on these things very often. It's so, so, so easy to fall into a spiritual slump. It's so easy to almost fall away at times in that sort of thing. 
But that is not how the Christian life is described in Scripture over and over again. It's striving. It's doing better. It's moving ahead. It's not going backwards. It's not being satisfied where you're at spiritually. It is moving ahead, going for the higher ground, going deeper into Christ and into the Word of God. There is no place in Scripture for us taking spiritual retirement while we're in this world. You find it over and over again, the apostles, not just, P, not just Paul, but Peter and, and all the other ones. is this encouragement not to be satisfied where you are. Do better, go further, go deeper, climb higher. Don't sit on your spiritual laurels and do nothing. When it comes to salvation, there are basically four types of people or categories of people. Some people are not saved and they know it. They're not even interested in being saved. They have no interest in Christ. They have no interest in his church. They have no interest in the Holy Spirit. They have no interest in any of this stuff. Matter of fact, they very often run away from it. It's exactly the opposite of what they want. There are, however, people who are not saved who think they are. There are people today, you know, if you bumped into them on the street and you had a conversation with them and you you ask them what their religion was, they would say that they were Christians and you would say, well, why would you say that? And they'll say, well, when I was 10 years old, I came forward in an altar call and I professed faith in Jesus Christ at that point. If you started looking into their life, you'd find that very often they haven't lived a life that's really indicative of Christ being present at all. There are some who believe that Jesus is nothing other than our get-out-of-jail-free card that's available to everyone. There are also people who are saved and they know it. But the only way you can really know it is to know you're saved for the right reasons. And one of the things is this, is to really be saved, guys, you have to know that you didn't save yourself. You have to know that God saved you. How did he save you? He saved you by sending the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to convert you and indwell you and live in you. There are a few people that would fit in the category of being saved, but they don't really know it. There are people who see their sin, and not just their past sin, but their ongoing sin to the point that is so grievous, they don't believe that God's forgiveness is big enough to cover all of it. I know a couple of people, I think, that might fit in that category. People are actually saved, and they just don't realize it. It comes down to they don't think they're worthy enough to be saved. Because there's a sense in which they see their own sin more clearly than maybe a lot of the rest of us. And they see the ugliness of it. They see the grievousness of it. And they question, how can I be saved and still do the things that I do?
You've heard some other things said today that that grieve the Spirit of God. And one of those is this. is This very common saying in the church today, and that is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Some of you may express that very expression yourself at times. He hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, let me ask you something. Is God going to throw sin into hell for all of eternity? For disobedience? He's going to throw sinners into hell for all of eternity because of disobedience. I mean, there's all kinds of things that sound really good, that really appear to the human, uh, very appealing to the human mind and to the human ear, that are nothing but lies from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke. Wishful thinking expressed on the parts of people. The distinction that Paul is making through these verses is this. is either you are of the Spirit. The Spirit indwells you. And if he does, this is what it's going to look like. Or... The Spirit doesn't indwell you, and if He doesn't indwell you, then you're not saved. That statement of no more condemnation doesn't apply to you, that you are still under the condemnation of God's law. Do you ever think about where you're at spiritually? Seriously. Are you satisfied where you are? Are you at that place you think you ought to be? Have you arrived? You heard me say this a number of times that Paul is bringing this argument. He really brings things to a head in uh, in verse 13 of this chapter where we read these words, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, no, that's 14, 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, in other words, you are living according to the will of your sinful nature, what is the consequence? You must die. It's not maybe you will die or perhaps you'll die, but it is you must die. That is the only possibility. There is no other possibility. So if we are here living according to the flesh, in other words, the flesh is the main thing, our sinful nature is the main thing, the focal point of who we are and what drives us more than anything else, then we can't have any confidence in the idea that we're saved. And what Paul says, if that's you, then you, you not only will die, but you must die. Why? Because God's penalty for sin has to be paid. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, your sins have not been taken care of. But if by the Spirit... 
They're putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, if by the power of the Spirit working in you, you are actively participating in putting that vestige of sin that remains in you to death, then and only then will you live. Does it sound like Paul is just saying here that you need to be, be satisfied where you're at? Get all comfy, cozy where you are. Just feel really, really, really good about yourself and, and, and that sort of thing. Is that what Paul is saying here? No, he's challenging them over and over again. And very often in very direct and difficult language and words. Never to be satisfied as a Christian. Always to be felt forging forward. It comes down to this, and that is, what is the most essential, central thing to who you are? If it's sin, you might think you're of Christ. You're one of those people who believes that you're saved, but in fact, you're not saved. And it doesn't do the church any good or you any good, uh, good for, for people to encourage you to believe that you're saved when there really is no evidence in your life that you are. You know, we don't do altar calls here, and I'm not going to tell you that altar calls are heretical. But we've, we've, many of us have experienced those, and we know this, that when people come down because they're emotionally charged or they feel guilty or whatever, they'll come down and make a profession of faith in Christ very often. And sometimes it's real and legitimate. Don't get me wrong. Some people are saved through altar calls. But that's not the primary means by which people are saved. It's, in fact, the rare means by which people are saved. If I took a tally of the people in this room, there may be a few that would say, when I was 10 years old, I went forward at an altar call, and my life was transformed from that point. For most of us, it didn't work out that way. The primary means by which other people come to faith is, is through the Spirit of God moving in the people of God. Going out. Being about our Father's business in this world. And part of that business is sharing with other people what we know. I mean, we got the best thing going. We got the best thing anyone could possibly imagine. We have the thing that is worth more than everything else put together and multiplied. Whatever. It's the good news. It's the great news. It's the only good and great news. There is no other. And let me tell you, as we witness to people, if people don't see us to be different... It's not going to sink in. It's not going to settle. And if the Spirit is in you, let me tell you something, you will be different. It's not maybe I will be or possibly I will be. You will be different. You won't go with the flow. See, the, the, the underlying threat in all of this is Paul is saying here that you're led by one or two things. You're either continuing to be led by sin 
or you're led by the Holy Spirit. There is no in-between. And what it comes down to for each one of us is the question is, what does that say about me? Do I have reason to conclude that the Holy Spirit is the principal, primary work that's going on with me, that Christ is central in my life, he's the most important thing around which everything else revolves. He is what drives me, he is why I live, he's what I live for. Or is he just my get-out-of-jail-free card? I made a profession of faith sometime in my life, and I can live my life any way I want to. Because I know that when I die, I'm going to be in heaven. Because fundamentally, I've been a little bad in my life, but more, more than, much gooder than I am bad. If you believe that, you don't know yourself. You believe that, you don't know God. If you believe that, you don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not indwell you. Verse 17. Paul talks about being heirs. Not the only place that Paul talks about this. Galatians. Being heirs of the kingdom of God. It's hard to imagine. Not only that, we're fellow heirs with Christ. What he inherits, we inherit. Because of our association with him. We're adopted. We're adopted into the family of God. Those who are not his own, God claims his, his own and makes them his own. And keeps them there. Verse 17, he talks about being glorified. Do you understand what that means? That we, we as Reformed people, we understand this. A lot of it has to do with Romans 8, is, is that there's a process of salvation. In other words, particular steps in salvation that God carries us through to bring us to the final estate. And that final estate is what we call glorification. What happens to believers when, they, when their body dies, is their spirit leaves here, and their body stays here, but their spirit leaves here and goes to be with Christ. Their spirit is glorified at that point. Why? Because they can't come into the holy presence of God without being glorified. If their spirit's not glorified, when they enter into heaven, they will be consumed by the almighty power of God. Because they can't come into His presence. But we know that one of these days, Jesus is coming back. And there will be believers living in the day when Jesus comes in this world. They will never die. 
They will be completely glorified. They will be made completely holy at that point when Christ comes, both in body and in spirit. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring the souls, the spirits of those who are now with him in heaven, who have died, but had faith in him. They've already been glorified in spirit, like we said. But on the day of the great universal resurrection, their body will be glorified too. What was perishable is raised imperishable. Understand there's a great day coming for believers, and that day is the day that Christ comes back to this world to claim what is His. And we will see the glory of God and the fullness of all that it is for the first time. And I know some of you are struggling really bad at this point in your life. Maybe you don't know how this is going to happen and that's going to happen and how this is going to be taken care of and that's going to be done. But if you're a believer, Almighty God is your Father. Christ Jesus is your brother and your Lord. Paul has already said that there's only one place to have peace in this world, and that is when you have peace with God through Christ. Boy, I could just keep going on and on and on. You know, what I'm tempted to do when we get finished with Romans is jump back to the very first verse and start all over again. <laughs> we'll be there none too soon. I want you to do something this week, and that is think about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you you do that there may be some things you would do otherwise that you won't do because that is true you are holy you are set aside for a holy purpose by God do you want to be done with sin do you, is there a yearning in your heart for it to be over with is that what your passion is is that what your heartthrob is do you hate sin that much? That you just can't wait until the day when you're completely and absolutely done with it forever? That's why Paul writes these things, is to stir that passion in us. Because when we keep this in our mind, then the things that might be monumental in our life or today don't matter to a hill of beans. Eternity is what matters, not what is going to happen tomorrow or the day after that. In Christ's eternal kingdom, today is going to fade into the past very quickly.
So are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Has it even crossed your mind? You know what your besetting sins are. If you don't come to me, I can tell you what they are. I'm just teasing. <laughs> you could do that for me. We all have besetting sins. But Christ has given us the power, the power of his spirit in us, to be engaged in the process of putting them to death not being satisfied with them, not just kind of turning a blind eye to them, not pretending they're not there, but to deal with them head on. To live for him in a way that will attract other people to him, not turn them away from him. Because if you're living like this, something's going to become obvious to everyone, and that is, you know something I don't know, or you know someone I don't know. Because you're different. You're not like everybody else. And what makes you different than everybody else is understanding this one simple truth, and that is I am saved by God's grace and God's grace only, not because I'm better, not because I did more. No, 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 none of that stuff. It's just simply because God is a God of love, and he has chosen in me to love that which was totally, absolutely unlovable. That will be a lighthouse in the world that people will flock to. Live for him. There's a sense in which he's all that matters. most important thing of all.